Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. And we have a very special guest. Uh, We've been talking about having this gentleman on for a long time, uh, always over my objections. But uh, finally, I've been worn down. Who's our special guest? Hi, it's me, Justin DeClue, broadcasting live with Will from the place that all important podcasters record at... A hotel room. (laughs) Hotel room in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, We've been uh, going to the Mahoning Drive-In, which is this miraculous drive-in in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, where they show uh, sort of culty and schlocky movies on 35 millimeter. And that's all they do. It's like it's like a place that I dreamed. Anyway, I, I brought the two of you together today because I think it's high time you each learned that I have another podcast. So th- th- this is the this is the long-awaited Michael and us uh, important cinema club uh, crossover. Because I thought what we were doing here is that we're actually just recording a version that's going to be recut into two separate versions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of them I will dominate and introduce, and uh, the other version. But you need to listen to both of them to get the full story of our clash. <laughs> I will I will be edited out entirely of the important cinema club episode. And Justin, you will be edited out entirely of the other one. And uh, Will will give didactic monologues in both that destroy all subtlety. (laughs) One thing that we're going to learn from this collaboration is you you can't tamper with nature. You know, (laughs) some things are meant to be separate. But when you bring them together, mankind's uh, reckless arrogance in the face of God himself. One of us is King Kong. One of us is Godzilla. And one of us, no listener can see where I'm pointing at right now, is baby Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, with the Promethean ambition of combining our two podcasts, let's get into it. It's a a pretty special film that you both enjoyed in a drive-in setting, probably the best place to watch it, and which I consumed in the second best possible medium, a 13-inch laptop screen. (laughs) By the way, on a website, uh, a random obscure website, because the file uh, that was sent to me uh, by someone was four gigabytes in size and I could not download it. One other fun detail about my viewing experience is that I spent about 30 minutes watching the original Japanese one first before realizing uh, that I was watching the wrong movie, which, you know, was a mistake and uh, added about 30 minutes to the experience, but also I think in a way uh, was oddly immersive. What's great about that four gig file is that even if you had downloaded it, you would have just watched a VHS rip anyway that would have looked terrible. Well, I apologize. I was hoping you would be able to just stream it directly from Dropbox. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that you eventually found your way to watch the movie. And, uh, you know, I'm not that guilty because you got to watch a great movie one and a half times. <laughs> An ageless force of destruction has been awakened. 30 years ago, they never found any corpse. Space age weapons are useless. Escape is impossible. Godzilla 1985, starring Raymond Burr. Godzilla will live. The legend is reborn in the all-new Godzilla 1985. Rated PG. All right, so Will, why don't you tell us about this very special Godzilla film that the three of us watched this week? Well, it was originally titled The Return of Godzilla, and it was released in Japan in 1984, and it was the first Godzilla movie in nine years. We all know, uh, actually we don't all know, uh, uh, I know very well that in 1954, Godzilla first arose from Tokyo Bay, uh, the product of mankind's reckless arrogance, uh, more specifically the product of nuclear destruction. 
and caused devastation in his 1954 original film Godzilla, which we did an episode about maybe maybe a year ago, maybe half a year ago. And speaking of recklessness, what ended up happening was the company Toho, who had produced the original Godzilla, realized, ah, there's money here to be made. So they trampled him with movie after movie, recycling the same plots over and over again, until finally they put a bullet in Godzilla's head with terror of Mechagodzilla in 1975. So the series last 15 movies from 1954 to 1975. Uh, They trended as the series went on to be more juvenile. If you've seen the first one, you know that it's actually quite a serious film, quite a downbeat and somber movie. By the time the third one came around and he was fighting King Kong, the tone had lightened considerably. And and by the 70s, uh, Godzilla was doing pro wrestling moves. He was dancing. (laughs) There's a movie where he he talks briefly. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a movie where he slides across the landscape and kicks another monster. Uh, he slides on his tail, I should say. What's the, is that the scene that appears in one of the seasons of Mystery Science Theater in the intro? That's the one. <laughs> yeah, from Godzilla versus Megalon. After a while, you know, there was no more blood to squeeze from the stone, so Godzilla went to slumber for a few years. <laughs> and then in 1984, he returned in this high-tech, back-to-basics Godzilla movie where they retconned it so that only the 1954 version counted. They were going back to Godzilla as a fearsome symbol of nuclear destruction. He was no longer a hero anymore. And this launched another wave of films that lasted until 1995. Now, uh, fans will know that the original 1954 Godzilla was bought by an American company, and released in 1956 in a version called Godzilla King of the Monsters, where 40 minutes of the film was brutally cut out, and another 20 or 25 minutes was added, apparently all filmed in one day and one night, which is... Nah, that sounds like Edgar G. Elmer made Detour in, like, four days. You don't, you don't think that's true? Well, well anyway, it's, it's inconceivable if it was. Uh, footage was added featuring Raymond Burr, later, later known for Rear Window and TV's Perry Mason. Uh, he played an American... American reporter called Steve Martin. <laughs> Which you may notice in perhaps another appearance that we're talking about today, he's credited as Stephen Martin. <laughs> yeah. And they only ever call him Martin in the film. Yeah, I guess St- I guess the name Steve Martin had a different connotation in the 1980s. <laughs> Someone had kind of claimed that one. So in the 1954 original, I mean in the 1956 re-edit of the 1954 original, there are all these scenes where Raymond Burr plays an American reporter who's in Japan, and uh, he's going to visit his good old friend Dr. Sarazawa. But he keeps being told, oh, uh, Dr. Sarazawa is busy right now. Uh, here, why don't you come and uh, uh, look at this from the distance? Yeah, Dr. Sarazawa is just off screen there. <laughs> there are all these scenes of, you know, various meetings, various uh, important dramatic scenes. Then you see Raymond Burr, different film stock, clearly a different set. The lighting is completely different. He's, he's saying to his translator, what are they saying over there? And this adds so much to the movie. It's absolutely incredible because if you, you know, if you look up anything about this movie, like if you look it up on Wikipedia, uh, it just says starring Raymond Burr and no, <laughs> no one else is credited as be as starring in this movie. And the whole time as there's this, you know, these horrific events unfolding in Tokyo and in Tokyo Bay, he's just sort of like in a completely different location contributing basically nothing as far as I can tell. And then occasionally delivering these like these little faux profound sound bites about how like, you know, if you think that will stop Godzilla, you are clearly wrong. And I don't think he really does any 
anything else in the rest of the film. So I would I would contest that Raymond Burr is starring in this movie. So what's interesting about Godzilla 1985, which is usually the way the American version is credited, because that's what pops up right in the opening, the awesome opening credits, I should point oh, out. Oh, love the opening credits. Uh, is that beforehand, Godzilla had just been treated like garbage as a film series by just a hodgepodge of American distributors. Well, the second Godzilla movie was released by Warner Brothers as Gigantus the Fire Monster. And they were going to, with that second movie, actually shoot new Godzilla footage. And they got, like, the suit. They never ended up doing it. It, like, rotted away in a box somewhere. And, you know, obviously, any exploitation movie, any monster movie was treated with sort of a minimum of respect. Mm -hmm. But there's an added level of racism to this because, you know, the 1954 one, they're basically saying, well, people people in the West aren't going to sit still for all these scenes of just Japanese people talking. We have to get we have to get just the most normal white guy in there, just just a complete doofus who does nothing and have him say things that are even less interesting. And that will that will be good. People will like that. That's the only way people can watch this. Now, we say that about the original version, but Godzilla 1985, when Raymond Burr pops up on screen, he's brought back a smile just spread across my face. Okay, so so the backstory of Godzilla 1985 is it's released in Japan. It's a great success in Japan. And they go to all the American studios, Warner, Universal, everyone. They say, we want $5 million or whatever amount of money it was to distribute this movie. Everyone says no. And finally, they work their way down the rungs to a company called New World Pictures, which used to be owned by Roger Corman. And he, he had sold it two or three years earlier to some, some younger entrepreneurs, and they bought it for five hundred thousand dollars, you know, some very low amount. And and basically, it was the same logic as the nineteen fifty four fifty six version, where it's like, well, people aren't going to sit still for this whole thing of just Japanese people talking. Uh, we have to get a big, big star, and, and, <laughs> and who who can we get? Who who is going to? Bring get, people into the multiplex. Raymond me, Burr. Get me Raymond Burr on the phone now. There's no other man for the job. Didn't they originally want someone else? Okay, so w- when they bought the movie, they actually, the original plan was to do sort of a what's up Tiger Lily thing. <gasps> where they would like redub the dialogue and make it funny and they would re-edit it and they thought they, they were actually going to hire an American actor. They didn't know originally Raymond Burr was in the 1956 one. Uh, so they were going to hire either Lauren Green or even I think Leslie Nielsen was discussed too. They were going to really ham it up and camp it up. Uh, but then eventually somebody decided on Raymond Burr and they called him and, and said, oh, he's very enthusiastic. Uh, he really wants to do it. Uh, he will give you one day and also uh, he will not say any jokes because he actually really truly believes in Godzilla as a symbol for nuclear proliferation. I think that is a positive on Raymond Burr's side, because if we kept cutting back to the control room that they're in, doing nothing, staring at the events of the Japanese movie, and everyone was like cracking jokes, it would be not fun. Raymond Burr looks like late period Orson Welles in this movie, just walking around in like a big, you know, uh, I can't even explain it. It's not a moo-moo, but it's, he's, it's slimming. For yeah, sure. He's well draped. And all the jokes go to like a red-haired guy who's just cracking up a storm. Well, that's what I was going to say is that, uh, you know, all the American characters in the film are all save one actually are extremely serious and they also seem really bored. Like the general who's coordinating the whole American response. It's like, you know, he, he'll be informed that there's like, you know, a nuke about to detonate over Tokyo 50 times the yield of the Hiroshima bomb or something. And he's like, 
get me the airbase on the phone. Like he's just sort of boredly, uh, you know, responding to this global crisis. Raymond Burr is the same. He's super serious, just delivering these profound monologues and these little, you know, these little interventions where he's saying stuff like, those weapons of war will only anger Godzilla. But it does seem like some of the original script or at least some of the original idea for this movie in which it was going to be a comedy, at least some of the sensibility, you know, managed to creep into this movie because there's this red haired major who is uh, who's in all of the American scenes who's just like this really out of place comic relief and he just says stuff like uh, like he'll he'll look, he, at one point he looks at a picture of Godzilla and he's like oh, handsome little devil isn't he uh, sunk a Russian sub I, I'd say put a uniform on him and, and sign him right up uh, and the whole time he's just <laughs> delivering lines like that and then Raymond Burr is just you know staring seriously uh, off into the distance and we could call up the Delta Force with heat-seeking missiles they right. can be in place in six to eight hours. Anything else? Maybe a mega dose of horse tranquilizers. Or failing that, a little horse sense. You may have to rethink your strategies, gentlemen. There's probably no weaponry effective against Godzilla, except perhaps... Who are you? Name is Martin. You asked for me to be brought here. Mr. Martin is the man you asked me to get, General. He's the newspaper man that witnessed Godzilla's attack 30 years ago. Well, thank God you're here. Since you're the only person that seems to know anything about whatever it is we're dealing with, what can we do? I was the only American who survived that catastrophe. If you men had seen what I saw, you'd realize that firepower of any kind or magnitude is not the answer. Don't we see like footage of like Japanese people being killed and maimed by Godzilla and then it cuts to the red hair guy going like, well, that's one form of population control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, that, it, he says, that's some urban renewal program they got over there. And uh, one, one creative decision that I do like is that every time he makes a joke, it cuts to Raymond Burr just scowling. You know, he's the audience surrogate in those scenes. And Raymond Burr is just standing there and each time we cut back to him, me and Will were like, get the man a chair. He's just <laughs> standing in the middle of the room for hours seemingly something something else i read was that the company behind the movie wanted to do product placement in the movie and uh so there were a bunch of dr pepper or maybe there's just one like placement of dr pepper two there's yeah. two because there's because you see the uh the vending machine and then there's another scene during a dramatic monologue towards the end where the, the guy is just swigging a dr pepper can and i just want to point out Toho got paid oh, not very much money for this movie. I think all in with the cost of prints, advertising, it was like $3.2 million. But Dr. Pepper spent $10 million on Dr. Pepper related Godzilla advertising. There's a very famous ad where it's like a, not Godzilla for copyright reasons, but a Godzilla-esque figure who's just chowing down on a giant can of Dr. Pepper. Now, as I understand it, you know, the marketing director for Dr. Pepper like they didn't just want Dr. Pepper in the movie. They're like, we got to get Raymond Burr drinking the Dr. Pepper. And so <laughs> some some actor that was also in the movie was given the thankless task of like, okay, you've got to go to Raymond Burr and, and explain to him that he needs to be drinking Dr. Pepper in this one scene. And he reportedly <laughs> responded by quote, fixing me with one of those withering glares and just saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the correct response. Raymond Burr is the real hero of this film, both off screen and on. Uh, so we should we should do a rundown of the plot of Godzilla 1985. Look, the problem is that me and Will were watching it at the drive-in and we, we couldn't pay attention over our whooping and hollering and clapping our hands we, watching it play out on screen. We, we, yeah, we were hooting. We were taking our shirts off every time Raymond Burr was on screen. 
we, we, we had one of those big uh, foam fingers that they have at the ball game honking our horns. So, so yeah, you know, you got a, a, a fishing vessel. It's in Tokyo Bay. It's a stormy night, but it's not just a stormy night. And that's because there's something lurking in the waters. Japan in 1954 was attacked by a fearsome creature known as Godzilla. Despite what you may have heard, for 30 years he has rested in his slumber. He did not fight King Kong. He did not feature in dozens of films. Yes, he, he uh, Megalon, Jet Jaguar, Cetopia, all these things are not real. All of those stories you would hear on the playground were all just made up. You know, those myths, they're just imaginary stories of kids being like, oh yeah, I saw Godzilla. He fought like a giant crab monster. And you'd be like, what? No, he's like, oh yeah, my um, uncle's friend, he totally <laughs> saw it happen. And it just becomes, you know, uh, dogma. Eventually, uh, there is evidence that persuades the Japanese prime minister that yes, it is Godzilla. And we are in the middle of the Cold War here. So there's a great deal of Cold War related tension with a uh, Russian sub that gets sunk. This is this is essentially the thing that makes them have to reveal it because there's a lot of speculation. Was it the Americans who sunk the sub? No, the Japanese. Japanese Prime Minister has to confirm it was, in fact, our old friend Godzilla. And this leads to one of the greatest changes in the American version, which is when Godzilla attacks, he knocks a Russian sub against, you know, a cement wall, which, of course, (laughs) just activates nukes that are going to go up and just destroy Japan. And in the original Japanese version, the Russian guy on the ship is like, must stop nukes from launching in the american re-edit the russian guys like must launch nukes before. they actually they actually changed the subtitle so it is is dying wish is he must before he dies launch a nuke on japan so in 1985 we are in a cinematic wave of like red scare films aren't we i looked it up and in 1984 we get red dawn the granddaddy of the 80s like oh no the russians are coming you also get stuff like top secret which is another like we're going to the Soviet Union and it's scary and it's funny. And who can forget Sylvester Stallone's one-two punch from 1985, uh, Rocky IV, where Rocky single-handedly defeats the Soviet Empire, uh, and Rambo II First Blood, which is, uh, does that have a, I can't remember, does that have a Red Scare element to it? It's certainly reactionary. It's that he's just trying to win Vietnam again. Yeah, I don't remember. Is there like a Russian soldier that's there helping the Vietnamese? I mean, I guess any sort of conservative Vietnamese Vietnam revisionist movie has a red scare dimension to it, doesn't Mm. it? So New World Pictures bought this movie and in the original Japanese version, much of what they cut out involves uh, US-Soviet relations. There's a scene that does make the American version where there's a summit between the Soviets, the Americans and the Japanese where uh, the Americans and the Soviets are united in begging them to use nuclear weaponry to stop this. But the Japanese Prime Minister says, no, we're we're the only country who's experienced this. We will never use nuclear weapons. I'd also say that in this scene, the American diplomats seem eminently reasonable and calm. And meanwhile, the Russians are just like shouting bearded guys who are completely incensed all the time. (laughs) Pulling off his shoe and banging it on the table, practically. (laughs) Um, However, there was an additional scene in the original Japanese version that sort of softened this, where the prime minister has some more reasoned words with the uh, Russian and American diplomats, sort of explaining to them carefully why Japan can't use nuclear weaponry. And this is an example of the sort of scene that was cut to make the movie less neutral than it was originally. I mean, in the original Japanese edit, the Americans and the Soviets are basically just positioned as their equal players in this big geopolitical soup. 
for people that aren't familiar with the original Godzilla series, uh, it really stemmed out of this kind of utopian ideal that the original director, Ishiro Honda, had. That, like, everyone gets along, lots of sequences at the UN Senate of people being like, what should we do about this space menace? Yeah, whereas in, in this version, there's much more tension between the nations than I think there was even in the Japanese mm-hmm. cut. So uh, as the film goes on, Godzilla does appear. He goes on a rampage. This was the first Godzilla since the original where he didn't fight another monster. Uh, Uh, I remember I hated that as a kid. I was like, when is he going to fight another monster? All he does is fight a little spaceship. But now... As a mature adult, I can appreciate it in all of its forms. There, there is like a there is like a little creature that's in an early scene that attacks mm. uh, that attacks one one of the two people that's on the ship. I can't remember if it's the survivor of the ship or no. I guess it's the reporter who comes to find him. It's like a little creature that attacks him, and I swear to God that I saw wheels in the shot at one point. I could be wrong about that. My mind could be playing tricks, but I think I saw some little wheels in the Japanese version. I believe you can. NC wheels. They actually cut down that sequence a little bit in the American cut to make it tighter. There's more explanation for that sequence because that reporter or whatever, he's on the fishing vessel and he's trying to find if there are any survivors. And this, yeah, this creature comes out out of nowhere and it just seems like this, well, why is there this other monster in the movie? But it, but it turns out he's a creature who is emanated from Godzilla's nuclear uh, uh, haze, basically. And there, there are other creatures like him. But that important context is cut from the American version. Not that it matters, really. Well, it's good that I watched, uh, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of, uh, of the original because I got to see the wheels. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> well, there is a mythological uh, story in my life, which is, you know, everyone's always talking about it. When I was a kid, uh, one of my friends it was one of those kids that his parents let him watch everything. So I'd go to his house and I hated like, those fucking kids. Godzilla action figures everywhere. He had like every tape of Godzilla and it was the best ones. The ones that had like the shittily painted covers of like Godzilla looking all wall-eyed and like fighting a monster that looks nothing like the one that's in the movie. And he brought Godzilla in 1985. He brought I, it to class. Yeah, he brought it yeah. to class and our teacher showed it and he was like, it looks so fake. You can see Tonka written on the side of the cars when they appear in frame. <laughs> that's not true. And I was like in the fifth grade, and I was like, that, that's not true. You're lying. <laughs> and during that day, we watched that movie. I must have moused off to the teacher or something like that. So I was banished to the coat room, which was part of the class, but off to the side. And I could not watch the movie. I could only listen to it. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I missing? You were, you were, a, bit, you were a bit like Raymond Burr in the film, just like yes. <laughs> Off not really having much of an impact. <laughs> I, I'm still hung up on the idea that like in the year 2000 or whatever it was, some classroom was watching Godzilla 1985. I'm sure the teacher was taking like a nap in the corner. <laughs> this was probably the uh, conservative government was in power. No one cared what was going on. Classes were crumbling. <laughs> yeah, at my, at my school, it was just the emperor's new groove over and over again. <laughs> Let's be honest. We all watch Shrek over and over and over again. Shrek I've seen multiple times in French. (laughs) So anyway, speaking of Raymond Burr, though, I think it's important in the plot synopsis to get to exactly how he plays a role into the film. You see, he's dreaming about Godzilla from the get go. Oh, yeah. I love that shot of him sitting at his desk, just thinking about Godzilla, still traumatized by the experience. So at the Pentagon, as social life revolves around the Dr. Pepper machine, the various uh, generals and... And uh, majors and whoever are there, they're saying, we don't know what's going on over there in Japan. We need we need somebody who can tell us what the hell it is we're dealing with.
dealing with. And this is assuming that it's been a world where, you know, 50 years after this, like much greater than 9-11 scale attack. <laughs> no one has done any research into Godzilla. They just like, let us never speak of it again. Yeah, there were not like 30 or 40 years of like hundreds of thousands of people studying this like epochal event. <laughs> and, and we find out that apparently there was only one American in Japan at the time who survived the attack and saw Godzilla up close. And it was a Mr. Martin. And you know what's amazing is that he is brought in, as far as I could tell, not because he has any particular scientific expertise or anything, but because he, like, saw it like it's, yeah, he was a reporter he, he has he no a, information about he's godzilla a, he's an eyewitness he's an eyewitness to this attack and it's like well presumably pictures could have covered you know there probably would have been some pictures <laughs> of it and what's great about him appearing as well is that he keeps telling them stuff and they're like man we don't want to listen to you and it's like why did you bring me in well because there's only there's only so much they can do with just wholesale adding 10 or 15 minutes to an already pre-existing movie so what they have to do is have raymond burr say the sorts of things that would kind of lead to the characters in Japan defeating Godzilla. So so he comes in and he doesn't smile through the whole movie. Uh, and, you know, in fairness, given the ordeal that he's been through, uh, you know, there's no more laughter in Mr. Martin's life after what after what he saw in Japan. And he's also haunted by the new Steve Martin. Who, you know, every party he goes to, people are like, oh, are you related to the comedian? He's like, uh, no, he's, I'm the guy that saw Godzilla. Uh, you know, he spent his whole life, who? he spent his whole life, the guy who saw Godzilla and now he can't even say his full name anymore because because <laughs> some fucking comedian, the guy from The Man with Two Brains, came along. We're and... wild and crazy guys. Okay, I get it. I know who Steve Martin is. <laughs> so so yeah, he he comes in and he's always standing. And the generals are always saying, "Well, we got to use firepower. We got to use air power. We got to knock that sucker out of the sky." And he keeps saying, "No, no, that will just confuse and anger Godzilla." It didn't work the first time. And Godzilla is nature. Godzilla is trying to find something. He's trying to find whatever it was that brought him here. Well, if the Japanese were able to stop him 30 years ago, why can't we now? General, Godzilla is like a hurricane or a tidal wave. We must approach him as we would a force of nature. We must understand him, deal with him, perhaps even try to communicate with him. And just for the record, 30 years ago, they never found any corpse. And yeah, as you say, they don't follow his advice. You know, even if they did follow his advice, what exactly could they do? Like, could they like set a big mousetrap for Godzilla? Can they, uh... they, they, uh, the, the world's biggest banana peel for him to slip on, something like that. I do wish uh, Raymond Burr in this movie was telling the Japanese what to do, and then they would just do it like, oh, Steve Martin said to do this. All right, let's do it. American might is leading the way. But they probably wisely made a decision of him just being like, he's not dead. Don't trust it. And they're like, he's dead. We're just going to ignore Mr. Steve Martin. But there really are limits to how much you can recut a movie like this and have it still make any sense. Because the Japanese, you know, which, and I assume this is the case in the original as well, uh, like there's a professor named uh, Hayashida, uh, and he figures out that Godzilla's brain is like that of a bird, uh, although it's been mutated by the nuclear fallout or something. So on the basis of that, he figures out that Godzilla can be made to respond if he hears the sounds of birds chirping. So they duplicate the sounds of birds chirping and they use that to lure him uh, in various ways where they attack him with a super weapon that I think is called a uh, super X that is resistant to his blue fire breath. 
So the, the Americans and Steve Martin have absolutely nothing to do with any of that. And unless I'm, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure at the end of the day, uh, the scientist uh, is ultimately the one who figures out how to defeat Godzilla because they attack him over and over again and, uh, you know, are obviously unable to stop him. But then I think the climax of the movie is they use uh, the fake bird sounds to lure him back into the volcano uh, and then he falls in there and then they, you know, close it with bombs or something so that he's uh, so that he's stuck back in there. So again, Steve Martin and the Pentagon do very little. I mean, I guess they have to be credited or Steve Martin doesn't, but the Pentagon does shoot down this missile that uh, the Soviet officer was just dying to launch. That only wakes up Godzilla because of the <laughs> nuclear fallout, which I believe an American goes, ah, don't worry, it's harmless. And I'm like, is it? Nuclear fallout from the probably the world's biggest bomb to ever go off? Two nuclear bombs, uh, two nuclear <laughs> missiles, two ICBMs exploding, you know, not too far off the coast of Japan, like up in the atmosphere. I'm thinking that's probably, you know, that's going to have some consequences. That red mist falling over the sun completely <laughs> changed the color of everything. Don't worry about it. There's yeah. nothing that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, if it revives Godzilla. <laughs> uh, and it's also mentioned that that bomb was 50 times the effect of Hiroshima. So, but by the way, that, that subplot you allude to of the Americans shooting down the Soviet missile that that dastardly uh, dying <laughs> sub-captain <laughs> shot for no reason whatsoever except personal malice. You know, he was like, I'm, I'm dying, and if I have to go, everyone has to go, so he must launch his missile. That subplot was greatly expanded in the American version, where I, I think not a lot of emphasis was placed in the Japanese version on the Americans' effort to launch this mm-hmm. this uh, missile to shoot down the Soviet missile. Yeah, I believe you didn't see them that much. Uh, the one big difference in the American version is that basically these sequences run episodically, like, oh, we need to deal with the missile, and then we deal with it, then you see it explode. We need to deal with getting off a building and a helicopter. In the Japanese version, they all run concurrently, so we keep cutting back to all of these things happening. Now, I am going to drop a, a atomic hot take here. I know it's coming because I turned to Will and said it as the movie ended. Uh, I've seen both versions of this movie. Uh, I would rather watch the American version, honestly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the Japanese version, I hate it when I hear people that work on these American versions, like the Godzilla 2000 guy being like, ugh, they didn't know what they were doing. Like, we came in and we fixed it. Yeah, well, because even the, even the Godzilla movies that they didn't add horrible new footage to, most of them were recut in some way to mm-hmm. make them to make them better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel like this this has changed in recent years. Maybe it's because movies are so, so much more accessible on streaming now. Anecdotally, I've observed a much greater tolerance to watch movies with subtitles, for instance. And there are fewer Harvey Weinsteins who are saying like, well, hey, we like this stuff, but it'll only play in Peoria if you dub it and you add like a very incongruous musical soundtrack and you cut 30 minutes out of the movie to make it more of an action movie. You cut all the Japanese-ness out of the, out of a movie. There's, there's a lot less of that now. Mm-hmm. But... This American version, it does smooth out. The pace is faster than the Japanese version. And it's just a joy for me and Will to watch Raymond Burr's just gravelly face on screen. Okay, so this is basically what it comes down to for me. You know, you can watch a movie with more of the reporter and the the guy who survived the ship attack and the scientist doing their... I mean, those scenes to me are just DOA. Just And there's and there's kind of a love story, right? Is that played up in the Japanese version? Uh, not really. Uh, and this is a problem, I think. There's just... With every Godzilla movie? Well, just 
just just those human scenes in this one in particular. There, there's no heat. There's no uh, tension. Um, I do enjoy that it turns into a disaster movie at the end, which is novel if you've seen the last 20 years of Godzilla films, where that's something they kind of dropped because he became more kitty-friendly. And so he wasn't really threatening humans and killing them. But there's still some comedy relief in Godzilla 1985 by a seemingly homeless man that's having uh, the time of his life in the apocalypse. Yeah, Luke, did you like the homeless man? Did, <laughs> did he make you laugh? <laughs> he made me laugh, although I, there was one laugh-out-loud moment in this movie that didn't feature him, actually. Uh, it was a scene where, and this I assume this is in the original version, unless it was just inserted to make you know the Japanese look bad. But there's a scene when Godzilla's attacking Tokyo, and there's like a, a a news chopper or something and you can hear oh, the so you can hear the you can hear the like the news chopper over the radio and it's like uh, this is reporter Takanawa in news chopper number 1 uh Tokyo is under attack and it's flying like right in front of Godzilla <laughs> and of course he just smacks it down and it explodes <laughs> so it's like you know you could have just like not been like 15 meters from his face I do think that this movie, even though it's the more somber Godzilla movie, I do think that the Japanese version does have a sense of humor about itself. Mm, absolutely. And, and I would point to the scene where Godzilla is sort of traipsing through the middle of the city and he picks up the train. And there's something about the way that there's the edit between the very realistic scenes of people screaming on the train and then Godzilla, who is just shown there's no attempt to hide how rubbery and sort of fake looking he is. Well, he looks at the train and then he just kind of like casually tosses it to the side. Nothing dramatic. He's just like, hey, I'm bored with this. And let's be honest, that's really a King Kong move anyway. He, it, he felt uncomfortable in his skin doing the train bits. But but I love I love this movie. I love the look of the movie. I love the sort of nocturnal atmosphere. I love all the fire and the red. I love the booming musical score. I, I also love Godzilla. They they built a mechanical Godzilla face. So oh, he can, I love it. That so looks a little different than the suit face. He can emote a little bit more. Am, am I wrong that Godzilla, uh, his his, his his scale seems to oscillate somewhat throughout the movie like when he first comes out uh, out of the water I feel like he's like the size of a mountain. And then when he's uh, attacking Tokyo, he seems to be smaller than some of the buildings. Am I being pedantic or is that fair? The Japanese do pay a lot of attention to that when they make movies. You can look online and actually find like scales of how Godzilla would, you know, grow bigger or grow smaller depending on who the director was or like how big they wanted to make the buildings. But I think he looks small in this movie, particularly because they want to contrast the way that Japan has blown up over the years so that a Godzilla that towered over all the buildings in the original version in this one he doesn't even get as high as like most of the buildings. Interesting. So, so it's in fact a commentary on on uh, industrialization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but 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 actually, I think it I think it kind it is. of is, you know, because they could have <laughs> yeah, made him bigger, yeah. you know. In the American remake that came out in like the 2010s, they very specifically made him gigantic. Otherwise, he would just be walking, and there'd be like buildings that are double his size if they kept, you know, the original Godzilla heights. Speaking of the American remake. Make, something that Roger Ebert says in his one-star review of Godzilla 1985 is how, how dare he? I know is how fake it is when Godzilla falls into the side of a building, sort of crashes it open, and you can basically see that the building is hollow. Like if you were to look at it closely, you know, theoretically you would see desks and refrigerators and stuff falling out of it. But in the is this, 2000 a, is this another point? Is this another political point? Will the building is hollow? Uh, just sh uh, thus showing the hollowness. <laughs> Of the economic system that it the represents. The Japanese economy. Just, you know what else is hollow is uh, capitalism, folks. <laughs> capitalism. Uh, but in the recent 
Warner Brothers Godzilla movies, obviously it's photorealistic effects, or if not photorealistic, very very detailed, and you see Godzilla crash into buildings, and you actually do see stuff fall out of the buildings. You, <laughs> you see desks and offices and stuff, and I, I mean, I like some of those movies, but to me, it's not quite as fun when you're actually confronted with, oh, this this is actually what it would look like. Like, this actually does look like a city being destroyed. And obviously, all of these Godzilla movies are in some way or another reacting to whatever the traumas of the day are. And the recent American ones are sort of post 9-11, post the tsunami in Japan, Godzilla movies. And so they're working through that trauma. But I personally like in Godzilla 1985 how it looks like the idea of a city more than a city itself. And it has this hyper real or or maybe unreal quality to it that's quite beautiful and dreamlike. I'm realizing now that we should should do a future episode on Godzilla 2000, which by the way, that guy you quoted before who was involved in Godzilla 2000, nobody who was involved in that film has a right to be pious about uh, another Godzilla film film or any other film in fact because that is an absolutely terrible movie perhaps that's controversial are you thinking of the Matthew Broderick oh Godzilla? sorry I actually am thinking uh, of the Matthew Broderick <laughs> no, 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 there is literally a film called Godzilla 2000 that was released in the wake of the Matthew Broderick Godzilla no, okay, th- so, that's a so, very understandable mistake <laughs> so explain to me what uh, so what is Godzilla 2000 okay so in 1998 there's the Matthew Broderick one, which is horrible, by the way. And if you want a Godzilla who who really changes sizes, there, oh my God. There, there are times when he's going through the subway. There are other times when he's like the size of the Empire State Building. Well, I want to ask Luke, were you ever excited as a kid when that Godzilla movie was coming out? Well, uh, no, but there's not an interesting reason for that. It's just that I lived in the country and I, I had like two channels and uh, Godzilla was sadly not present in my childhood. So you didn't even go through like a dinosaur phase like most kids were? they're like, I love dinosaurs. And then Godzilla is the logical extension of that. I, I w- you know, I was into dinosaurs. And if mm-hmm. Godzilla had been available to me, I'm sure, you know, my di- my interest in the Stegosaurus might have blossomed into something greater, <laughs> but it never did uh, because because there were only two channels. Well, I'm sorry that you didn't live in a big city when the Matthew Broderick Godzilla came out because it had one of the all time great marketing campaigns. There were these there were there were buses where they had ads on them that said his foot is the size of this bus. Godzilla size does matter. And the Godzilla 90s version has one of the most infamous premieres at Madison Square Garden where everyone was there, even the Taco Bell Chihuahua. Oh, yeah. There, were those, there, there was a big Taco Bell. They were the Dr. Pepper of 1998. There was, the, there was that commercial where the Taco Bell Chihuahua has like a little mousetrap set up for Godzilla. And he's saying like, here, lizard, lizard, lizard. Yeah. And of course, they destroy Madison Square Garden at the end of that movie. If I'm remembering, the, the, the pilot who fires the missile arms something called the harpoon, which never made sense to me as a kid because you wouldn't fire a harpoon to destroy a building. Uh, he, he was called Gino, Godzilla in name only, because he's like terrified the entire time, always running away. Well, the people who made the 1998 Godzilla, I think one of them was quoted as saying, we want to do for this series what like Tim Burton did for Batman. And the way the way that you look at the Adam West version compared to the Tim Burton ones is how, how we want this to be. And as a result, what they did was they just took away everything that was fun about it. He's like, he's not, he's this lizardy, you know, hunched over, very very ugly creature. And that was a running theme. Every American production team that tried to remake Godzilla, like in the 70s, and they were like, eh, we don't really 
really want to make a Godzilla movie. We more want to make a James Bond film. And it's like, then why are you making a Godzilla film? Because they think it's dumb. All right, well, I'm sorry for my earlier confusion of Godzilla 2000 and I guess Godzilla 98. Is that the correct nomenclature? <laughs> uh, uh, Gino. <laughs> I, I, I believe it's, ju- it's officially just called Godzilla. But Godzilla 2000 was a movie that came out, yeah, two years later, which was the Japanese response to it. I mean, basically, Godzilla had been in the press so much that they were able to generate money to create more Godzilla movies. There was a renewal of interest in the series. And Godzilla 2000 is kind of the most back-to-basics Godzilla movie you can get. And there's a joke in that one, right? Where they're like, didn't Godzilla attack New York? And they were like, nah, that was a fake. A lame (laughs) fake. Let's not talk about him. Well, the hardcore fans are pulling out their hair now because that was actually a joke in the subsequent film, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters, All Out Attack from 2002. Uh, They're taking away my Godzilla (laughs) membership. Well, uh, regardless, we we should do uh, the Geno Godzilla on this pod because as I recall, there's a very bizarre plot involving the French or something like that. <laughs> like It is to appeal to a phrase that is the dead horse of the show. It is kind of an end of history movie mm-hmm. because uh, absolutely because for some reason there's this whole weird thing with uh, with the French, which I guess we can elaborate on further once we've all uh, experienced it again. Another thing that I think is funny about that movie, and I'm sure we can articulate on this later, is that there's so much destruction. New York is half destroyed and everybody is just so kind of snarky about it through the yeah, whole movie like the entire way through nobody takes it all that seriously and then three years later of course new york did have an attack now now we actually know what it would look like i mean when you talk about realism in these movies if a giant monster would suddenly pop up and attack a city you know what you would see a gigantic dust cloud and nothing else that would be it Th- that's right because we've we've seen two skyscrapers in lower manhattan fall and people know what it looks like people know what it smells like mm-hmm. i mean well just to close us out here i realized that i actually uh i actually lied about something earlier which is that uh you know there was one <laughs> i watched I- godzilla 1985 <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is well not only did i watch it i also watched accidentally 30 minutes of the other one i know um, i i feel i feel genuinely guilty about this now <laughs> anyway uh, i said before that there was only one laugh out loud scene for me in this movie which is the one with the chopper there were actually two and the second one came right at the end uh, with Raymond Burr's monologue, oh. which to me was... Wait, wait, the- you were laughing here? You didn't have tears streaming down your face <laughs> the, while you were watching the, it? The, the contrast of that... Well, okay, two things. For one, the the, fa- the contrast of this monologue with like so much of the rest of the film, which is, you know, it's fun, right? But it's, it's, it's pretty goofy. And Raymond Burr is just, as everyone around him is like swigging Dr. Pepper and, you know, the ginger-haired major is, is riffing about the Ruskies. Uh, Raymond Burr is just, you know, deathly serious and he delivers this monologue that, you know, this is the second thing that was funny about it, is that it is so unsubtle and just completely destroys, you know, the subtlety of Godzilla, which let's let's face it, it's like, you know, we know what Godzilla is about. We don't need this. And then at the end of the movie, Raymond Burr just says, nature has a way sometimes of reminding man just how small he is. She occasionally throws up terrible offsprings of our pride and carelessness to remind us of how puny we really are in the face of a tornado, an earthquake, or a Godzilla. Whether he returns or not, or is never seen again by human eyes, the things he has taught us remain. And it's like, it's basically he might what as, did he teach you guys? He might he might as well. He's like he's basically saying, you know, 
Well, folks, uh, we've had a lot of fun tonight, but you know what's not funny? <laughs> Man's abuse of the earth. Sometimes the earth mother tires, uh, tires of our wicked Promethean ways and responds with her eternal wrath. Hope you had a good time tonight, and, folks. And just and, keep that in mind, folks. Yeah, keep that in mind in future. Yeah, don't forget to always recycle. <laughs> I love that speech because he's like, a tornado, a hurricane. Or a Godzilla. <laughs> like yeah, father, Son, and Holy goes. Ghost right there. That's the trifecta yeah. of things. <laughs> and people who haven't seen the movie, picture this speech over like a Godzilla just falling in slow motion into a volcano. <laughs> a That's the most dramatic music plays. And like uh, Godzilla in this film gets dramatically destroyed by just kind of taking a step too far and just stumbling into a volcano. <laughs> but you see, you sense in Godzilla's face that he's almost in ecstasy. He's like, he's, <laughs> He's like, I'm coming all the time. He, yeah, he, he's he's like being drawn towards the earth, like like almost sexually, and 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 he just like plummets into it. Like God, I don't think Godzilla is unhappy at the end. Well, I think Godzilla understands that this is where he should be. Let's face it, uh, he knows there's going to be another movie, and uh, just as we know that there will be another, uh, there will be another Godzilla uh, episode of this show. Justin, perhaps we can have you back. As we've just established, things are better in threes. Just as you have a tornado, an earthquake, and a Godzilla, you know, yeah. father, a son, and a Holy Ghost. You've got you've got Will, Justin, and Luke. So we're gonna put the band back together, folks. Uh, but this was this was fun. Uh, we'll see you next time for Godzilla '98. Nature has a way sometimes of reminding man of just how small he is. She occasionally throws up the terrible offsprings of our pride and carelessness. To remind us of how puny we really are in the face of a tornado, an earthquake, or a Godzilla. The reckless ambitions of man are often dwarfed by their dangerous consequences. For now, Godzilla, that strangely innocent and tragic monster, has gone to Earth. Whether he returns or not, or is never again seen by human eyes, the things he has taught us remain.